Welcome back to the podcast and welcome to the first episode released on a Thursday and this is the new permanent date for the weekly episodes of the podcast. Today's episode on Autistically Hours Neurocast podcast is with Natalie Balamain. Natalie was a contestant on the first series of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister is a six-series part uh, season in which it takes place uh, in around the British Westminster political system of the world of being a Prime Minister. And it was released last year, in 2022, the year which was a per- turbulent time in politics like any when defined by perma crisis where we had not one but two prime ministers this show explored the many ways of what what solutions is needed and what fresh ideas and fresh people helps when you go beyond the Westminster bubble for politicians these taken people from different walks of lives in public. Contestants who are neurodivergent and have many different backgrounds in life. And in this series they would uh, take uh, given challenges by political, from a political spin doctor for the Labour Party, Alistair Campbell, and by an, a Baroness. Sayida Razi the uh, set and they were set uh, challenges in which any Prime Minister would face uh, with the eyes of journalists like uh, Tim Sipman, Pippa Crever and Grace Blakely to write up the headlines of the challenges for each episode with uh, challenges watched over by politicians like Johnny Mercer, Chris Bryant and Jess Phillips, including the tasks of its, uh, the contestant on this episode, Natalie Balmain, uh, talks to me on. Uh, Natalie was the was one contestant with ADHD and type 1 diabetes, which she tells me about in this episode of the podcast. Not only was she a contestant, she went on to win the whole entire series and become Channel 4's first alternative Prime Minister. And the, the first one, which meant she had little idea what it meant to become Channel 4's alternative Prime Minister, in which I talked to her about. But I talked to her a lot about her neurodivergent story and how she got on with the programme. She shares the experience of being anxious and having uh, anxiety as well. The challenges also of being diagnosed and seeking diagnosis whilst at the time being on the show, which she explains further on in the interview. In this interview, as I said, is with Natalie and you'll be able to hear this interview in a moment. This interview, you could quite say, since it's with Channel 4's alternative Prime Minister, this is 
alternative Prime Minister's question time. So, um, hi everybody, I'm Natalie Balmain and um, I am a, gosh, where do I start? Mixed race, 36-year-old from Manchester. I'm an aromantic. I have type 1 diabetes and I was diagnosed this year finally with ADHD as well. And that all happened around the same time that I was doing the show Make Me Prime Minister. Also, it seems like you had quite a busy year, 2022. So how would you find that? What was leading up to the diagnosis of ADHD and how did you realise you have ADHD? So I think um, probably I, I I had an inkling um, for a long time, from at least the last sort of ten years at least, that you know I was I had a neurodivergency, but it had been basically misdiagnosed my whole life as depression and anxiety, um, mm. and depression and anxiety was a really easy way I think of for doctors to diagnose you, especially because you know I am thirty six, I was born in nineteen eighty six. And I'm a girl. So we know people in this age group and especially women, yeah. we, we're just not diagnosed. We weren't diagnosed um, at the right time as children. And I had lost my mum to cancer when I was five years old. So for a lot of doctors, I guess, the burnout, um, the, the, the loneliness, those aspects of my neurodivergency um, were misdiagnosed as, oh, well, she's lost her mum and she's depressed. Um, and I always knew that it was more than that. I feel like I spent a lot of time in my life trying to fit in. And a lot of people, especially of our parents' generation, don't see that as something to be concerned about. But I think there's so many layers to trying to fit yeah. in, aren't there? And I think that for me, what I found very difficult to explain was that I knew I wasn't quite the same as everybody else. I knew that the way that my brain worked other people, so for example, a really great example of this is with ADHD, as you know, many people expect you to be physically hyperactive. Yeah. That, that they understand that as ADHD. I'm not physically a hyperactive, but my brain is hyperactive. And my brain is constantly, it's like my brother and I are, are both the same, we're twins. We both have ADHD. And um, he describes it as listening to being in a television shop where all the televisions are on at the same time, but every single one is on a different channel. And that's a great way to, to yeah. describe it. So when I was having conversations with people growing up, I would often notice that I would butt in with something that was probably 10 points down the conversation. And people just took that as rude. People just took that as, oh, a girl who can't wait to to, to for the spotlight to be on her and for her to be talking. And that was, was what was very apparent to me. And I knew that I couldn't help it. So for me, the, the depression and all the burnout that I think I was exhibiting yeah. was, an, was an exhibition of trying so hard to fit into societal norms that I wasn't trying to break and I wasn't trying to be rude and I knew it was rude, but I couldn't help what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, in a very long yeah. way, a long way of saying it, I always knew there was an issue, um, but it wasn't until, and I think this is true for a lot of people, one of my best friends, her little girl, had very similar things to me and ended up getting diagnosed with ADHD and autism, and I went, oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that this story will ring true for many people, and kind of like, oh, so, uh, like, from my seeing about neurodivergency and ADHD, kind of rings true for many people, uh, 
at the moment because like I've seen a lot of like the moment is starting to be a point where a lot of women and girls who have been undiagnosed or you know living with ADHD the whole life and now it's that time where they're starting to find out and as you say that you know like there's no issue that there's been way like your ADHD has kind of been like invisible to others around you like quite camouflaged and as you say with it it's like it doesn't present as like physical behaviors or something like noticeable visible behavior. But as I say, it's certain things like what's internally going on in your mind, as I say, a lot of overthinking and overstimulated. So that's been visible stuff that, that can be quite hard to get diagnosed. It is, it is. And I had the added complication when I was 20 of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And that's when mm. I think in the years after that diagnosis, when I'd wrap my red hand head around that diagnosis, that was when I really started to think about, I probably should try and tackle and get a diagnosis for what is going on up here as well, because it was affecting my ability to manage my diabetes and to care for myself. And that was a big deal, because obviously, if I don't look after myself with type 1, I could very easily die. Yeah. And and so then I started to go, OK, I need to take measures to look after my ADHD or I won't be able to look after my T1D. So with like ADHD, as you say, it's like a point if you're undiagnosed, then that can be like a trigger from, you know, your mental health and challenges with that. I say it's like, and I've seen in with your ADHD, with your type 1 diabetes and managing your physical health. I assume it's with your... Uh, executive dysfunction challenges that it can be harder to forget to either take insulin, measure your blood levels and find ways of making sure you manage like your physical health around that. Absolutely. Because, you know, a very regular thing for me, and I'm sure for lots of people with ADHD, is that mindless, you know, you, you've got something that's on your mind, but the second you put it down, then it's gone. And the amount of times I would give myself my insulin and then I would sit there within 60 seconds and go, did I just give myself my insulin? And, and it's awful. It's all yeah. So I'm on an insulin pump now, which is much better because it keeps a record of everything that I've, that I've, all the insulin I've had so I can go back and check. But um, yeah, it's, it, it definitely, um, I describe it as a bit like walking, you know, having ADHD and type one diabetes is a bit like walking a tightrope, except the tightrope's on fire, you're on fire and everything around you is on fire. <laughs> As I said, do you think when you were saying some of that, it was kind of like pointing like an amusing because like I, I one of the reasons why like I'm starting to suspect I have ADHD or could have it is like I'd say that minute like as you're taking like as you say your insulin, you know, you was forgetting about it. Sixty seconds later after taking tablets or even shorter, can be like that. Maybe take my like tablets and normally take with anxiety and mood person and like then again I often like kind of ask whoever's in the room my mother sister I've taken out and then I'm like oh keep I keep on forgetting the simple things yeah it's, it's like so like it can be so stressful like we can impact your day-to-day life then it does and I think that that's the bit that I don't think people are talking about enough is the burnout yeah you know because we all know that you know even for a neurotypical person the world is difficult right now you know people are having to work a lot more hours because of the way that the economy is people are not necessarily being able to 
eat enough. They might be losing sleep over anxiety, over paying their bills. So for a yeah. neurotypical person, this period of time is stressful. But for a person with neurodivergency, you know, people are shutting down. They're just going, nope, I, I can't. I just can't cope. I can't do this. And we need to be sort of talking about this burnout and, and letting people know that you it's okay to take a break. It's okay to do nothing for a bit, you know. Even Christmas yeah. has become a time where there's so much you've got to go to the parties, you've got to do your shopping, you got to decorate your house, wrap your presents, see all the family. No, like, and that's something that I think is really hard for people with neurodivergencies because we've spent our lives trying yeah. to fit in and trying to be the same as everybody else. That oh. thing of saying, no, actually, I need to support myself doesn't come naturally, I feel. And I think so for some of that, I think with like going through a period of the pandemic and stuff like that, I think for like some for people who have neurodivergencies, it's been a moment where like with like it kind of hits on as a burnout of what's like in lockdown or what you've previously been through and you know in your previous life to at that point, then it kind of hits on to you. I think at this point where everything kind of stopped and I think then they noticed throughout the pandemic that more people started to do, discover the the neurodivergence itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that came from people finally having the mental freedom, not having to be on the commute every yeah. day. And you know, because you don't, you don't. I don't think a typical working day allows a lot of people to be very self aware about their habits and their behaviours. But in lockdown, they had a lot of time. Yeah. to think about their habits and their behaviours and the way that they did things. And I think that that, like you said, a lot of people started to put the pieces together and go, yeah. hmm. Yeah, and I was just saying, so, you know, guess for yourself, right? Then you, like you were, as I said, you were diagnosed last year. So was it like a point in the pandemic that you were able to like realise, now this is the time that I went to get a diagnosis? Yeah, I think that... Um, during the pandemic, I was still working in healthcare, so I didn't actually stop working. And for me, obviously, like for everyone in healthcare, the pandemic, instead of being a time of, you know, we're at home and working yeah. from home and everything's a little bit more, for me, it stepped up. And that was the point where I think everything combined. And I really did. I ended up in hospital, major burnout, really bad blood sugars. And I kind of went, I was scared because I was in hospital and there was COVID. I didn't want to be yeah. in hospital. And I had that moment in hospital, that bit of time, that week in the hospital bed where I kind of went, I really don't want to be here. I don't want to end up here again. And I feel like if I had managed some of these things earlier, I might not have ended up here this time. So that was really profound. And I kind of went, you know, I know as a type one diabetic, I, I hold my life yeah. in my hands. But that was a very moment where I kind of went, well, I really do hold my life in my hands and I need to be fit to do that. So that was the point that I started. I spoke to my GP and I said, look, I probably should have called you years ago, but I didn't really know how to do this, how to start this. And we got started. I filled in that huge questionnaire, you know, that lovely, great big form that they give you to fill in. And you're kind of there going, this is the worst thing for somebody with ADHD. Give me a big form to fill in. <laughs> yeah. And um that was all going on, um, that sort of process of, of you know, wait, waiting for the adult pathway and the referral and stuff while I was doing Make Me Prime Minister. So Make Me Prime Minister was really tough. It was the first series, as you know, so none of us yeah. knew what we were letting ourselves in for. And we filmed 
so much more than what actually got shown on TV. I think they had like 40 to 50 hours of footage for every one hour episode. And there were whole challenges that just didn't make it in. So it was massively stressful. It was massively tiring, long days, one after the other. And I was just, I think those are the kind of times where people with ADHD and autism can shine. Yeah, because you had a I had a hyper focus. It was like the show, nothing else. I wasn't at home. I was staying in a hotel. My dog was with my parents. Like everything else just stopped, so I could go. Mm. And what was interesting was was that I was working with Kelly, who also has yeah. autism, and we were talking about stuff. And you know, Kelly was she's very prepared. Like that's how her yeah. autism benefits her. She's, but when it came to the final. And it was Kelly and Holly and I, and Adam was my partner and he was going through everything with me. He said something to me that made me chuckle because I hadn't had a confirmed diagnosis yet yet at this point. But we went into the final and I showed him my notes. I did my speech. I did my everything. And he went, that is Kelly levels of preparation. (laughs) And I went, "Mm, I think I know why. And yeah, I mean... What's really great is me and Kelly have a great relationship moving forward from the show since because we had this little thing where I was going to her, I think I might be, but I've not had the, and she was like, yeah, you are. Um, And anyway, so after the show all finished and wrapped, I was on the phone going, yeah, yeah, you were right. I am. I've had the diagnosis and, you know, but it was interesting to me to go through the show at that point because it made me realize that we have our strengths yeah. we you know we have our talents we often get put in the same sort of category as people who you know like oh they're not expecting much from these people you know this category and actually what i realized is is that if you are put in an environment that allows you to flourish like that one you could go on and win the show and i think yeah. i wouldn't have won the show if it wasn't for my adhd oh well i mean you did meet on the show and i think what the show is so not well, it's like the like the skills and talents of having different ba- backgrounds of people you know involved in politics, all trying to like speak on political issues and you know give themselves an airtime where, as you say, you can like show the best of yourself and the best skills of yourself. And I could tell you learned a lot about yourself from that, as you say, that and I can tell with like having people like Kelly and Adam that you know like they helped yourself quite a lot. Absolutely. I made some amazing friends on that journey. It's the thing I'm most grateful for is the people that I made friends with. Um, But I did. It was a massive journey of self-discovery for me doing that show. And I never in a million years, I think it was obvious in the final, the look on my face that I was not expecting to win that thing at all. I just didn't want to be the first to get kicked off. And um you know, it, it that was amazing for my confidence. And it was amazing yeah. for me at that point to go, I am capable. I can add value. You know, I do have something to offer society. And um, I think for me, that was probably the reason that I got into the show the first place, in the first place. I wanted to yeah. prove it to myself more than anyone else that I was capable. Yeah. I, and as you, I can think, as you say that, if I'm watching this away, I think the ones... You know, as I say, you, when you got to the final, I think they, I think the point is, it's always, like, a lot of the people who were getting to the final, you know, like, you can tell the journey you've, you've been on for up to so and, you know, how you learned a lot from yourself. And I were like, as I say, that you, like, you, you yourself, uh, like, Danny Price, Ke- Kelly Given, you know, you, you've been able to uh, give a lot of yourself and, your own experiences on this show and 
bring yourself to the table on your personal experiences. So I think that's shown for in a show and how like how important it is like to see people on like given a platform to so like empathy for like you know as you say saying you're able to tell some of your story of your diabetes and your ADHD and to inform that in some of the policy making and speech making and I could tell by like your stage presence and your skills in the end. That's kind of helped you develop and advance through the series. Absolutely. And um, you know, I as stressful as long as it was, I would do it again in a heartbeat because I really feel that what I wanted to come out of it, which was to sort of inspire people and give people hope that somebody, you know, because I walked in there and everybody looked at me and they went, oh, there's the loud mank girl from the estate that, you know, they put her in to balance it out. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody expected me to to develop in the way that I did. Um, But that was the whole point for me. I wanted to prove somebody like us could just step up and do it and represent and talk honestly and frankly about things that matter to people, you know, because if you can't, I feel so disconnected from most politicians at the moment. And, you know, when you break it down for all the budgets and, and, you know, trade deals and policies and all, if you're not connecting with people, how can you possibly be doing a good job? How can you? Yeah. As you say, like, with yourself and many people on the series, you know, like, well, yeah, the cast, you know, we had a big life experience of, you know, as you say, not, you know, like, you worked in healthcare, you, you're like, um, like, somebody who has ADHD and struggled and has, like, been through big challenges to, to get that diagnosis and, you know, get, get where you are. And you don't often see that in politics and see that diverse backgrounds of, you know, like I say, working class monkey and person. You don't really see that in the cabinet or sad cabinet, really, in politics. So I guess you, you would don't. Do- yeah. You don't. And, you know, one of the comments that I feel the experts gave me a couple of times during the show was, don't be so emotional, you know, you've got to be tough, you've got to be this. And I, my response was, me being emotional is tough because I'm letting you all know that I don't care that you can see me like this. It doesn't bother me yeah. one second to show you my vulnerability. And that's my strength. I'm not going to put on an act and put on a front and be a nasty person because I actually don't consider that a strength. Yeah. I I consider being honest, being frank and being able to be honest, a massive strength. And I feel that that does more good in the world than trying to be a Winston Churchill and stick a cigar in my mouth and say, oh, yeah, you know, we'll fight him on the beat. No. No. I think think by the end of the scene, for the series, you can start to see that with emotion, you know, like actually works better for the people, you know, like the electorate, people who vote and people who want to get involved in politics. As you say, you've got that real life experience and, you know, when you are with politics and people who are in power, you want to see people in power make make, uh, changes for ordinary people like yourself and with and you know, like because you've been through quite a lot to get where you are, you got that emotion within you, and like without emotion, you know, like how are you gonna make that change and 
you know, like, at least you can show that you care about things. And that I think that's the way you empathize with people. And that's where you need to be more in empathy and humaneness in politics, really. Absolutely. And I think that there's two points, actually, I want to make on yeah. that. One, I actually I think this is a very typical trait of people with ADHD and autism is yeah. a strong sense of justice. A very, very strong sense of justice. Yeah. To the point where I might actually sort of at some points have got myself put myself in danger because I can't help but butt in if I see something that is unjust. I can't help but stand up for people on a bus or whatever it is. So that's that was the first point. But the second point is you're absolutely right. I think that we have people in government now who at no point in their entire lives have ever had to clean their own rooms. I yeah. think that they grew up in such a lifestyle that they had people that did that for them. And that's a very dangerous mindset to have because if you've never even had to clean up after yourself, that means that you believe there are people on this earth who are here just to clean up after you. And that is not the yeah. mindset of somebody who runs a government or, or leads a country. Yeah. It's just not acceptable. And I was just saying the problem that, yeah, you've kind of like been able to like show your motion and get mostly involved with it. But did you find like you've been able to see things with within from that sort of how you've been like saw as what could be barriers for neurodivergent and disabled people from getting into actual points of government and being elected into politics and what was the things you you learned about how to like how uh neurodivergent and disabled people can get involved in politics and find uh, places in politics more accessible. I think that actually um, what I discovered from doing the show is that there's a real need and there is a clear way that people with neurodivergencies can get involved in politics. Yeah. But then it's the level that you want to get to, sort of then you're going to have to start making, you know, safety net plans for yourself you might have to try and sort of find coping mechanisms to deal with things because at the uh, at the grassroots stage you know you're engaging with people fine you get to become a local councillor again there's lots of grassroots campaigning that's wonderful but once you get to becoming an MP or even serving in cabinet there's a huge amount more MP to MP debating, you know, teamwork and trying to reach negotiation and, and reach a decision. And at that point, that's the bit that I found I struggled with, and not because of my ability to deal with people, but because of other people's ability to understand neurodivergence. And, yeah. and that was the point that I went, okay, in this room, I'm, I've just got to accept that this person doesn't get it. And I've just got to find a way of, of saying what I'm saying that resonates with them because they're just not the, the passion, the, the, you know, the emotion, they're just not getting it. So I think that absolutely we need more. Yeah. And the more that more people that we do get in from grassroots level and bring them up, the more that we're going to solve this issue for all of us when we get to these kind of positions. And, and you know, I would love to see somebody with autism, ADHD in cabinet, I don't know, maybe even Prime Minister. Yeah. But there's definitely got to be a sort of, and I always talk about this, a collective energy. 
where, you know, we come in en masse because for our own sake, you know, one person trying to blaze the trail on their own, they're going to get burned out. And um, and that's really why I wanted to do it on the show, because I really wanted to sort of build us our little neurodivergent army of people who go, actually, I could do that too. She did it. So why not? And that's pretty, pretty important, something and put her into the world. Thing is, when we hear about uh, Westminster and that bubble on, you know, like in the media, red on TV media and whatever, you can like hear about it as if it's like some sort of weird bubble of it, both in the rest of the country and you like, like sometimes something totally else. So, like, I think the way you get the narratives talking about politics, Westminster, not bubble away from like local council and local government, it tends to be like, as you say, feels like something totally else. And then that's something that needs to be changed steps. And because, as you say, if you've got ADHD, autism, and anxiety and, and mental health conditions, and like minorities, you can feel and feel quite excluded by the way that portrayed as some sort of bubble away from the rest of the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think mainstream media have got a lot to answer for and a lot that they need to step up and do in terms of how we we talk about things like this yeah. in a manner that is understanding rather than, you know, and and absolutely, like, you know, the, it's the collective energy. I'm going to keep coming back to this this collective energy thing because more and more, you know, we've been isolated by just the way that the world has progressed in certain ways and certainly the pandemic and various other things. Um, but, you know, as you know, I talked massively about community in the final. I wouldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't for community. And um, and I think that that needs to be represented. You know, I, I talk about representation so much, being a mixed race girl with you know, two hidden disabilities and, you know, aromantic and, and all of this. I don't see us represented in a way that is real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do feel that because I say that you, beyond, like, what you could see on in the media, like, popular culture and, like, certain, like, arts areas and creative industries, like, I say, but when you, like, look at anything, like, people in power in politics, you don't see, like, no whatsoever actual representation, as you say, for, as you say, like, if you're a romantic or, like, certain, like, LGBTQ, like, people to, as say, you were saying about, like, your two disabilities and, like, being mixed, like, a mixed-race woman from Manchester, like, you don't really, like, see it from your background, so, like, like something as as unique as your own background represented represented in power in politics, and I'll say that it's got important to have the arts and like the media representation. But it's now as saying like about the collective uh, movement you went to work on that it's creating layers of like going beyond that and taking it into power in politics. Absolutely, absolutely. And and to show people that all of these things, I consider them a bit like brownie badges. None of them define me. I'm not just diabetic. I don't just have ADHD. I'm not just mixed race. I'm a combination of all of those things. And yeah. that is a unique experience 
there is no one else, you know, and and I, I think that is what's lacking in the representation is to go, actually, yeah, we do, you know, we could tick this box and this box and this box if you want to put it like that. But actually, when you bring all of those things together, it's something completely unique. And I say this about being mixed race as well. I'm not this or that. I'm both. Yeah. You can't just take one culture and say, oh, that's your because it's not. I know you can't take another and say, oh, that I'm not either of them. And both, and that's very different. As yeah, as you're saying about yeah, like tick boxes, it's like it well, it's not to be portrayed in like kind of the way, like it's just like tick box and tick box, tick box and tick box and sake, you know. It's about as you were saying, to find ways of like seeing the value and having like different people from different backgrounds, as the show was cleverly did, you know, as you know. The importance of actually making things work for people, as you say, and if if like there's nobody in like politics with ADHD in the government, then you know, as you say, that school systems on like you know, like uh, health support, I'd say mental health support, that that won't be there for ADHD people, and as you say, they probably would say the system would fail you then, and so like it's about. I'm saying it's about following people who got that skills to get involved politics from different backgrounds. Absolutely. And actually, it's really interesting because um, my initial big idea in episode one for education was way bigger, but it got broken down and broken down by the constraints of the brief, you know, having to get other team members to agree with it and various things and whatever. But actually, my original idea for education in, in episode one was that we scrap the national curriculum for primary school altogether. And primary school is used as a period of time to sort of understand and assess a child's needs. So give them exposure to loads of different lessons, you know, things that they might not otherwise get exposure to until high school, expose them to all of it, expose them to different learning styles, visual learning styles, you know, audible learning styles, kinesthetic learning styles, and understand what works for them. And then by the time that children get to high school, they're grouped into classes that are based on their learning style, the, the types of subjects that they naturally enjoy or are naturally able at or both uh, and, and and sort of change it like that so that we're making the most out of everybody rather than trying to make everybody fit into one box which you know that we, we we all know that we can't because then you make the best out of a percentage of your population and the rest of your population spend their life thinking that they're stupid and they've got to do any job that they can get to make money which is not conducive to living a fulfilled life. It doesn't make people happy. Yeah, yeah I was saying, it's like trying to find the best of a per, like, person, what the skills and working with, you know, a person's abilities. I'd say that is something good to focus on. And I guess one thing you've probably found about doing this always, I guess you had loads of different ideas and things that you that was focused on in the show that just never came to, I guess you had like, Loads of different things you've had to fix, like to see the next over the series. Yeah. And and it was hard, you know, working with people when we were all so different. Um, and trying to get your team, first of all, had to buy into your idea before yeah. you could sell it to the public. And uh, it was definitely a bit of an eye-opener for me that, you know, sometimes we can be so passionate about something that we just see it from like, that was the view that we're looking at. And there were a couple of times people opened my eyes and they went, but what about from looking at it from this angle? And I went, oh, oh, okay. So that was great. That was great. And it, I think yeah. it was a really 
wonderful example of how you could take a group of people from wildly different backgrounds and bring them together to work on a common goal. I think that, you know, for me, maybe it might have been easier to go through some of that stuff knowing. But like I said, I I kind of knew already. I just didn't have a confirmed diagnosis of ADHD. So like many people who've had late adult diagnoses, you've already built coping mechanisms throughout your life to sort of manage, you know, how you behave in a work environment and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I had my coping mechanisms. I still think that there were moments where I couldn't help myself and I, you know, like it got so, I got very, very overstimulated in certain parts of it and I would just be like, but I do think that I was able to, having spent so many years building coping coping mechanisms, I was able to use it to my advantage in the show. And, um, And like I said, you know, towards the end and certainly in the final, I had studied my policy and and everything around it you know like a mastermind subject <laughs> and it was absolutely you know one of my issues is is that i can only i can only focus on one thing at a time i get very stressed out if i have to think about what's coming up next um so i just focus on the things that i'm doing and i don't give any thought to what i'm doing next until i'm doing it and then that when i'm in that space then my brain is on that and so i think that that played well throughout the show because everybody else naturally I think humans kind of go okay it's episode one and then if I get through episode one I get to episode two and then you know but I didn't because I couldn't my brain couldn't think of that and actually towards the end even one of the outtakes um, one of the interviews that I did to camera um, they asked me what are you going to do if you win And, and I couldn't I genuinely couldn't answer I started to get a little bit upset at the question because I said I'm sorry but my mind won't allow me to think about if I win, I haven't got there yet. I can only think about this. I can only think about the debate and what I'm doing. But if I do win, feel free to ask me that question then, because my mind will be on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess probably to this away, yes, it was fair. Um, since no I guess from, you know, like when you were asked that question, and I'm saying it's the first series of this, so and I guess doing a reality, so we kind of like, that I guess you didn't know what would happen next naturally from that. And I guess even as I say with ADHD, it's hard enough to uh, you know, it's easy enough to focus hyper focus and try try your best to focus in here and now and not, you know, as you said, one of the coping mechanisms. But I can imagine from two inside so like I it's hard to know what comes next around the corner. So I guess from that, I guess that must have been quite some of the stress of doing hand. It's all like that. Yeah. I mean, fear of the the unknown is a massive thing for me. And not knowing the plan, what's coming next, is really difficult for me. And that's something that I think only people who know me would know this. But having won the show, people obviously naturally very excitedly want to go, what's next? And in the immediate aftermath, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. You know, I think Channel 4 and other people wanted to see what the public's reaction was going to be to various things. And um, and I just didn't know. I didn't know what the next stage would be after that. And it made me quite, I got quite stressed out about it because people were asking the question. So when they asked the question, that drew my mind to it. And when it drew my mind to it, I kind of went, well, I don't know. And there was, I couldn't find, I couldn't say it in a way that 
I don't know why, but yeah. like I could have just been like, I don't know. And people would be like, oh, I'm sure you'll find out soon. But uh, my brain didn't, I was just like, I don't know. But it came out so obvious that I was stressed and upset about it that people kind of go, oh, oh shit, tell me what's wrong. I'm like, there's nothing actually wrong. I just don't know. That's well, what's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and the thing is, it's like when I was told, it's totally different from say like a big golf or party food day or whatever, they always take breath competition reality so it's like, it's like the thing if you're in that you know like can get work and work with bacon and pottery work and such like that but when it's something like uh doing a prime minister program as you say it's like something that it's no like direct uh you know like the answer for work afterwards especially with Pharisees but you know since it's as a thing it's focusing on a democratic role that and like some thing in politics, I guess he was thinking, well, you know, it's hard to think what does come after it then. Yeah. And I think that I, you know, I, I still would very much like to, you know, do campaigning and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, as we know, being an MP is not professionalized, although they do receive a salary. It's um the likelihood of me even, you know, being able to stand as a candidate for MP is going to be at least a couple of years away. So I'm kind of like, well, what do I do? And um, I really hoped that as a result of doing the show, that I would be able to do more broadcasting work that aligned with neurodiversity and hidden disabilities and that kind of opened it up. The, the very question that we kind of asked, you asked me really early in the beginning was about how do people get involved in it? You know, I really thought that these were things that were interesting topics for discussion. And I don't know if, if some of those things are still going to possibly come. But I, all I can say is all of the, the stuff that I've done so far off the back of the show has been um, me going out and reaching out and doing stuff about it. And one of my aunties and bless her. OK, she's my auntie. So she's like got the, the goggles on and she sees me as like way more amazing than I actually am. Um, but <laughs> she said to me, she was like, I don't understand it. She was like, I don't understand why Channel 4 haven't done more with you. And, um, you know, because basically, I don't know if you saw this. Some people in my family were a bit offended that Channel 4... Um, had their alternative Christmas message done by an AI yeah. robot. And they were like, kind of like, but they've got their alternative prime minister. They could have done their alternative Christmas message. And one of my aunties, bless her heart, she kind of went, well, I suppose you do look a little bit like Meghan Markle and probably Britain doesn't want to hear from somebody that looks like Meghan Markle. <laughs> like I said, she thinks I'm way more amazing yeah. than I actually am. Um, but, uh, but I kind of went, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But um, I still believe that there's a massive space for these conversations and I do believe there's a massive space for somebody in broadcasting who can just be really forthright as my dad calls it it's a nice way of just laying yeah. cards out on, on the table but yeah somebody can be emotional and, and honest and yeah. that's why I've been really grateful for people like you who've reached out and said let's have a chat about it because it's so important language is so important normalizing stuff is so important acceptance and inclusivity is so important I just want to do as much of this as possible and you know what hey if one person listens to our conversation and goes yeah. oh they've got a point there great yeah and the thing is yeah that's like kind of like one of the points are also that I went to do this podcast is be able to like find a space where you can like talk about like issues that are important to the guests have their chance for them to tell their stories and how they went 
to make things better for neurodivergent and disabled people or any type of background they, they come from, a, you know, a different intersectional, you know, marginalised backgrounds to have a space and a voice where we can talk about, like, important things like this. Now, as you're saying... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I had somebody say to me recently that they didn't like all the labels that we give things nowadays. That was their labels. Mm. And my answer to that was labels are the first step in understanding and community. It's an identity. It's yeah. not trying to box somebody in and say, you're just that or you're just this. Because I've never, you know, I've said it already during this conversation. I'm not defined by any of these things. But the label helps you to A, have some self-awareness and some understanding of what your challenges are. But B, it helps you to find that community. And to me, that is something that I don't want to see lost in and I talked about it again in my final debate about globalization it's great globalization is wonderful trade travel fuel Starbucks whatever but none of that should be at the cost of local community none of that should be at the cost of being able to just catch up with people and have a support group and have a safety net and have a network and unfortunately for whatever reason that seems to be how it how it works. The more that the globalization happens, the less investment goes into the into the little individual community things. And that's why I wanted that's why I went on the show. That's why I want to talk about what I'm doing. And and that's what I ultimately believe in. You know, we yeah. we have lots of different communities. We have our geographical communities, we have our support communities, like I have my neurodivergent community on Instagram, I have a type one diabetes community. All of those things require time and investment, all of them. And it's easy to say that that's the the fluffy stuff, the nice to have stuff. It's really not to me. It's the fundamental stuff Yeah. because everything becomes harder in isolation. And if the last two years didn't show us that, I don't know how else to explain. <laughs> yeah, I've seen like everything just come out of right sleeves. Now, as you say, you're not like, oh, oh yes, like if you didn't have that label or, well, that words like ADHD or like certain part of the identity that is hidden and you will like have to discover yourself then I say that can be quite isolating then and I say it's about like there's so much more to like a person it's like I say it's like yourself is kind of like a river to you got all different parts to yourself you know like so like there's a lot to to yourself that you're not just one thing you're many different things now, yeah. as you can hint in the of that, and so as saying it's like a lot, lot, lot more than just the label, and you know, it's important to make sure that I you have that community. And I guess, well, I can see from what you're trying to do after the show is trying to work on like different campaigns and you know, like be able to like create a public platform where you can speak out on things that are important to you, as you're saying that. Like in things like local community support to us, see like rights for like people like diabetic and uh, ADHD people are. So it's connecting with the program we had for the ideas bubbling with like schooling and how to get that working for different neurodivergent people. And then as an aromantic and mixed race person, you want to be able to speak on injustices on different parts of your identity that's it absolutely and it all comes down to one fundamental thing that I believe which is that people fear what they don't understand 
when you don't understand something it's scary yeah. and that that can apply to something within yourself or something within other other people if you don't understand that you've got ADHD it can be very scary that diagnosis can be very comforting but also in other people when other people don't understand each other's challenges it's scary to them they're going why is that person acting that way well if we can normalize this these conversations if we can talk about you know, because nobody looks at me and sees ADHD. Nobody looks yeah. at me and sees type 1 diabetes. So it's very easy to make an assumption. Um, and then if they see me struggling, they go, well, look at that fit and healthy girl. What's she having a tantrum about? You know, actually, <laughs> I've got type yeah. 1 diabetes and ADHD. I'm not having a tantrum. Yeah. I'm having a meltdown right yeah. now. You know, it's very different. Um, so, yeah, I think that I want to talk to people. I want to be open. I want to be vulnerable. I want to show them that that's a strength. I want to put some ideas out there. I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I'm going to change the world. But what I do hope is that I might spark a brain that might change the world one day. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we can only do that by being open and being honest. So, you know, yeah. let's just, just do more of this. Yeah, you know, I was saying it's, I think for, for you, it's more about getting like, or like a ball rolling on certain things. It's like having these conversations at least can change like, certain people's perceptions and start to change few people's minds as you say you can't like change the world to it like in like a one big event you know like you know it's important that you do these small things and like when you're talking about like as you say like certain parts of your identity that are like um like kind of marginalized and and that don't get represented and guess it then comes quite out and you know like as I say important to start finding that space where you can speak and be a space where you can be heard and these type of things are like as with like ADHD and certain things like that there's not much conversation around it in a positive way in the media as when you talk about these things like in mainstream media it's like certain parts of identity and identity politics it tends to be in a quite polarizing type of way and quite pitted against each other. And so we, I guess, really like, from my think you were trying to do and hope to do is kind of like, but like, put an alternative way of doing it. Absolutely. And bringing people together. And I, I talked about this in, in the show as well, which is that, you know, identity politics is a great technique for winning a, a vote, great for campaigning, yeah. not so great once you're actually in power. And you need to bring people together on an issue. You've already divided them, sometimes very closely down the middle. So then how do you get people to come together to work on issues if you've already divided yeah. them into, into different camps? It just doesn't work. And I think what I showed in the language that I used and the way that I spoke in both of my debates, you know, in episode one, I came up against Darius and I won by 72%, you know, and that was an audience that was 40-something percent conservative voters, 30-something percent Labour voters, you know, however many percent Lib Dems, SNP. So to get 72% of the vote meant I'd brought together people of different voting backgrounds. And again, in the final, um, you know, that was a three-way vote. Holly got 21%, Kelly got 27%, and I got 52%. Again, in an audience made up of, a, you know, that same split. Mm. So again, you're bringing together people of different voting backgrounds. So it's not impossible. People are not yeah. completely against each other it's just that the rhetoric and the language that parties use make people feel that way and that's absolutely not the case if you speak to people in a way that is empathetic and understanding and reasonable and not 
aggressive or hostile you find that actually a huge proportion of of the people in front of you actually agree yeah and i was saying it like we're probably doing this around like the bits of like that are not shown on tv you know where it probably was a lot easier to have these conversations and persuade people's minds and you know have that open dialogue and conversation because i guess we well like as you said there's so much footage you filmed for like one episode, as you were saying in earlier, like you would do like 40 or 50 hours of the task, I think you said that earlier. So it, it's that thing that if you got the more time and space that you can like talk to people and you know campaign on these things, it's a lot more easier. But as you're saying, like one thing you probably found out doing this always that when it goes out on TV and like you don't really see like the whole part. 40 minutes of it or like a certain clip of the debate, then it comes a lot harder. So, and so what was like watching that back and how you kind of like started to see the perceptions of the program as to when you started to, uh, when you were reporting to the people in, in the audiences in the room? Yeah, so I think that um, in this example in particular, it was really tough for everybody involved because it was the first series. So nobody knew exactly how it was going to play out. And I think that what the show creators had done was to sort of create lots of challenges for every episode, not knowing what was going to end up looking good, what was going to end up getting pulled off or not getting pulled off or whatever. So it was a lot of experimentation. And I mean, for example, in the first episode, what you essentially saw was we're each given a task to you know, create an educational policy. We develop it, we write scripts, we do a media launch, and then we go and debate in front of the public. But there was a whole other challenge, actually, in episode one, that the public never got to see at all, which was that halfway through developing our policies, um, the prime ministers were called outside and they were ambushed by a group of angry farmers who wanted to know what the prime minister was going to do about the net carbon zero crisis. Um, And you're on the spot and you have to negotiate with these farmers. And that was a a challenge in itself, a mini challenge that throws you off your game halfway through doing the main challenge. Nobody even got to see that. That got cut completely um so that just gives you an idea of as the public as the viewer you think okay they've been given this one thing that's all they've got to think about well they didn't do a great job well (laughs) we had about half an hour to do the policy bits then you get thrown into something else then it's onto you know doing the media launch whatever so it was really it was really tough and aside from the whole challenges that got cut out you know even the bits you see we were given half an hour sometimes to come up with a policy, you know, and this is something that in real life politicians would spend months developing and we're doing it in half an hour on camera and having to have discussions out loud. And the producers are sort of like, you know, talk more, you're umming and ahhing, you know, and you're like, Oh, I've got to talk and think. And uh, 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 uh." so it was a lot. Um, And when you see that back as somebody who was there, obviously, I think everybody in, in, in one episode or another was upset that something hadn't made it in or had made it in or, oh, well, they made it look like I said this, but actually what I said in its entirety was this, which comes out different. So, but that's the nature of the game. It wasn't malicious. It was yeah. simply that 
you have 50 hours of footage and you've got to make a 47 minute program out of it. And not only that, you've got to make the program make sense and flow. Yeah. So it was a really hard job for the editors. Yeah. Um, and it was, I think it, I think everybody at some point felt like the edit didn't show enough or, or put some things that made something look slightly out of yeah. context. Um, you know, for, for me, my, my one was episode three, episode three in the crisis room. I felt like a lot of people were saying that I was being mean to Kelly. <laughs> now I want to clear this up right now because um, it, A, it was a crisis room. It, the yeah. tensions were really high, but B, it was definitely back and forth. It There was a back and forth there, but for whatever reason in the edit, the dialogue made it seem like, so there was a lot of Kelly that was cut. There was a lot of Kelly that was cut in that episode, um, including her laughing at me, which kind of made me go, don't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> so then you saw me being quite sharp with her and people were like, why are you being so sharp with her? Like, that was mean. You didn't need to do that. But actually you didn't see the little, the little spark that set it off. Yeah, so right. look, me and Kelly are fine. We're all good. Yeah. We're fine. We watched it and we were texting yeah, can, each other going, oh, yeah. look at this. Oh, look yeah, at this. And I was like, how you... dare they not show you? And she's like, mm-hmm. so <laughs> everything's cool. Yeah, but, no, you were saying um, you're the best of friends now. And yeah, you're all good. And like, ah, oh, yeah, no, you would be. Yeah, as you're saying, it's like, I guess, when you were in the co- like Cobra style room and so not that, like, princess, like, certain thing, like, press a task, like that. It did seem something that was super stressful, and I guess watching that back as a very kind of got think that I'd say with the 40 minute things, like I've dropped like so many different things you, you don't get to see because you know, like because the art breaks and you, you only get that sort of bare time, then you know, like you, you end up cutting some things out that would that would made it look a bit more give it a bit more sense and perspective as if it were. So um to guess that was quite super stressful then in that space. As you say, you, yeah. n- you never like the unpredictableness of like certain things and like like certain things change and like you like to be in the here and now. And then they can be quite stressful if you like planning certain things out and then like all of a sudden then, then like something steps up as I, I, I remember about that episode. And then they kind of like every like few moments on on camera, they would you would see like another different crisis or a certain thing happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, another great example is the final, um, the final debate. Holly and Kelly and I were actually on that stage for two and a half hours, doing our debates and our questions and our speeches. So. You know, that's without the shots of us walking in and the the cutaways and the the interviews and the the bus the battle buses. That was just the final debate. So you you really get a sense now of like how much that is yeah. that is cut down. Um, and it, that's not just for this show. That's just television. You know, they're looking yeah, yeah. for the little you know sound bites. Yeah. They're looking for the bit in what you said that's really just flow sounds good or yeah. exciting or or wild. Yeah. And, well, um, like- yeah, like that can be quite engaging and emotive. Like I was just saying, you know, like trying to pick out the highlights because as you say, you know, like if it's two and a half hours, that you know, wouldn't like sit through like I don't know, like a two and a half off the hour final. So we go next on like you're gonna get that, you know, I were airing on TV. I think sometimes it's a very you could but like you could watch a bit more, but I say it's just like what well, they give you as 
as a person watching it. Yeah. I still think that they could bring out a whole behind the scenes show. They could bring out a second show about that show just based on stuff that was cut out. I don't yeah, think I mean, they will, though. Yeah, I mean, like sometimes, like this, I always think with reality shows, you know, like sometimes you want to have a bit more, like, behind the scenes bits or, you know, like, extra bits, like, what goes on. I used to love, my favourite thing about filming the show was our medic. So we had a lovely medic named Kingsley. So if Kingsley watches this, hi, Kingsley. And every day, you know, you'd get there and there'd be a moment where you're all dressed and ready and about to go on camera. And... um that's the bit where you get a bit nervous, just the bits waiting. And every day that I saw Kingsley, he'd be like, and he was just brilliant. He just made it so much better. So there you go. Shout out to Kingsley. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it does help to probably have, like, nice familiar places, probably chat to, you know, in doing the tasks. Then I'll say that probably, like, made, like, been a bit more relaxed then, is it? Yeah. I think the behind the scenes bits, definitely in the green room and stuff like that. Um, that's where you get to sort of kick back for a bit, especially when you've got your mic taken off. Because yeah. those mic packs are quite big and bulky in the back of you. So you can never really sit down properly. So that bit where you get your mic pack off and you sit down and we'd all have these little boxes of hot food delivered for lunch and stuff like that. That was that was great. And like since you were talking about like there was school policy early on that you said, you know, like you would change to like put them in a primary school education and just made a note of this. I mean, obviously, like experience in school having ADHD and being neurodivergent. It was tough. I, I had a really tough time at school and I definitely was one of those people who left school thinking I was stupid, 100%. For me, there was a lot of things that were happening at school. Um, One of them was my inability to understand why I didn't sort of behave like other kids, why I was a bit all over the place. I I got some weird names because of it as well. Not weird names, but kind of not very nice names like Scatty Natty um, and things like that because they just thought I was just all over the show. But what I discovered very quickly was that if I found something that I enjoyed, I was very good at it very quickly. So I focused on that. Um, you know, I loved doing drama. I loved English, English literature. So what I just, that's what I focused on. And I think that was very obvious. When I left school, my grades, you know, I got like A stars in these like couple of subjects and like Fs and everything else. I was just saying that, you know, it's easy, you know, being able to do it and then that skill on that you can be able to type of focus or then you have certain focused interests as you kind of like explained but there when he was in school and as you say then it can be quite challenging then if you like you know as you can make big selling certain areas and then certain areas can be way behind and and yeah I think that's kind of like a common thing for neurodivergent people. And I think the thing is that what's really sad is that I've kind of proven now as an individual example what you can get if you actually support people with neurodivergencies to make the best out of who they are as an individual, because when I left school, as I said, I was one of those people that thought I was stupid. So I got a job as, you know, a sort of office admin, you know, I just filed things and put letters in envelopes and put stamps on them and stuff like that, you know, like that's what I did. And I did that for a long time. Most of from when I finished school until my late twenties, that's all I did. And I remember going for an interview when I was 27 and they did this sort of 
competency tests. Now, I'm going to have to go back to this company and find out exactly what these tests were. But there were things like reasoning and, um, you know, logic and various, various other things, um, you know, problem solving and all, personality yeah. profiling, all of it. And um, I remember after people had done their tests, like middle managers were coming out and doing interviews with people. But one of the directors came out and I knew he was one of the directors because he'd introduced himself to the group at the beginning of the day. He came out and pointed at me and he went, you. I was thinking, why does the director want to interview me? And he sat me down. He said, I wanted to talk to you myself because your test results were very interesting. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, you got 27 out of 30. And I went, oh, so I could have done a bit better then. Mm. He looked at me and he went, the national average is 12. And that was the first time in my life at 27 or 28 that I went, what? You mean that? Does that mean I'm smart? No, think about it. Twenty at twenty-eight years old, I've missed out on a decade of my adult life. I'd missed out on a decade of being able to contribute. You know, it was after that that I ended up working in healthcare. Well, think if I had that confidence, I could have given ten more years to our NHS than I did. I could have been doing it. I could have been further. It could have been better for anybody. I could have been in the NHS sooner. I could have been further up in my career by twenty-eight than I was. None of that happened. Nobody had benefited from me because school had let me believe that I wasn't. I didn't add value. Yeah, I was just saying that because, like, as you say, you like your ADHD didn't present in quite a visible way. And uh, as you're saying that, you know, everything the part of ADHD can, you like, you were saying that the effects of it felt more generalized and overwhelmed and like what's going on inside your like head. And I would like you, like, do the executive functioning and certain stuff like that. So I guess it was in a point where you were like, you, that, because that had not been picked up and like, I'll say not teachers wouldn't know, like, know what is signs to pick up and have the time to notice it, as you say, or even like, uh, the employers would do it then. And it's like the effect of not getting the diagnosis beforehand, like that happens a lot for women and girls who have ADHD or, when stuff may not present as like the typical male type, what stereotype of us saying that like loud and destructive naughty presentation that's kind of like the general able, you know ableist kind of uh, view of IEDs is then it, it can why well, you that there's kind of impacts then on your life and I guess you just went, went to be able to change that perception yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's obviously going to be a, a long term thing. It, you know, the the tide isn't going to change overnight. But what I think is really interesting is I think part of the problem that we have at the moment, at this moment in time, yeah. is that we have a lot of adults who are a lot older than us. So we're talking people in maybe their 60s, 70s, who probably are also neurodivergent and have never been diagnosed. Yeah. And so when you talk to them about your issues and you said this is part of my ADHD they're almost the worst for brushing it off and going oh this nonsense all these things that people are diagnosed with now anyway we weren't diagnosed with it back in my day and my response is always the same and I just say I'm sorry I'm sorry that you have had to struggle with this and that you think that this is just something normal that you just have to get on with and cope with because we can all do better than that we don't have to just get on with it and just cope we're we're moving forward into a time where you can thrive and flourish with these things you can be the best thing that you can be and and that's that's what I think is hard for the 
for the conversation is these we have these group of people who almost don't want to accept that we have this knowledge and this understanding now and probably because things that are traits of ADHD and autism are things that they see as totally normal because they, they actually have it themselves and they've never been supported and they've never you know they've just like I said they've just coped and so they have this thing where it's like oh don't be ridiculous that's just normal just cope with it you know yeah, we, think, we can do better than that and I think it's kind of like reflects uh you know where Tay didn't change off her uh, like men even like mental health and there were divergency where like whatever like past you know trauma or like struggles in your life you know that's it's kind of like changing to a point where we can start to look at slips and picks it, whereas, as you were saying, the news story would have been a bit more of a step up, like, and just keep calm and carry on and don't talk about these things. So yeah, I've seen absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. Just, and yeah. You know, even my own dad, you know, my dad is such a wonderful, understanding, open-minded person. You know, he is the most least judgmental yeah. person ever. But even he, when I was trying to talk to him about it, said, well, you know, think about soldiers back in the day, love, when they came back from war, you know, they were awfully traumatised. They just had to get on with it. And I said, Dad, that's absolutely true. You're What you're saying is not incorrect. But what you're forgetting is that a lot of these traumatised soldiers who just had to get on with it ended up having with alcoholism or addiction issues or becoming suicidal, you know, and and that's because they weren't supported. The, the the only difference now is about talking about it is that we can be supported and we can do better and we can stop people from dealing with you know the side yeah. effects of 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 coping because it's a side effect of coping that's what it is yeah and it's like what like whatever like life experience you had when you started to grow up and like you had from your childhood as you didn't from you like your pe- uh, parents uh Father's experience, like what with like the attitudes, social attitudes of after the time when you growing up, or like whatever, like like with your parents, and it can like can quite pass on, and you know, like throughout your life, and it kind of does affect you throughout your life. I was just saying that you know from wherever you know, like your pet, like the parents, like yeah. experience, like if as you said, your father, like and like as you said, reference the like the soldiers of the war. I think. Like from whatever time you like childhood was was after social phase of the the day then and wherever your parents go through it is kinda of like not gone for for like why how you kind of view things for your life and so like as you say the, the impact of starting to like kind of fix the problems that you maybe have had for years and decades, you know, like the struggles and trauma then, you know, is quite like a teach thing that takes a It is, it's, and it's really, and I think that the, we kind of have to try and take a strategic look at this to be yeah. understanding on every part, you know, where we are. We're limited by our experiences. Um, and so for, I think, for the older generation, that the best thing that they can do is to just try and be non-judgmental and to, to kind of open their minds to the fact that this is a part of progression, you know, we're always going to, older people should always expect to misunderstand part of the younger generation because that's a sign that we're progressing as a society. And and on the flip side too, you know, I always say to people, we should expect that our our ancestors don't live up to our standards. That's absolutely right because that's proof that we've progressed as a society. We've 
improved we've got better so so absolute there has to be that understanding you know older generations will be limited by their experience yeah for us we're kind of going okay we're feeling our way through it but hopefully the result is that we then make it easier for the people who follow yeah. us because as you say like i'm learning and stuff and you're learning stuff and you know like it's like we continually learning stuff about like our community our identities and you know as you're saying your ourselves even as well absolutely i think which is that it's this progression and you know i want to yeah. contribute to it i want to be part of it i don't i know we're probably not going to see the results of it in our lifetime but you know i know that if i did my bit when my time is done i can go hopefully i made things a little this podcast was uh recorded over separate parts over video call and o- over different parts so what you know is the following part and this may continue slightly different and hopefully try and p- find the path that I was o- we were talk- talking about when we last co- got from. You know, yeah, what? so I was just saying that I thought it was a really nice um, point to sort of wrap up was to talk about, you know, the long term and the progression. And I think we were saying, you know, we should expect to find that we have higher standards than the people who came before us. And we should also expect that the people who come after us will have higher standards than we do, because, you know, that's how we know we're progressing as a society, but we all have to sort of find acceptance in that, I think. And that's to accept that generations before us probably won't have the understanding of things that we have. And we have to accept that and understand that they're limited to their life experiences in some ways and you know for us we have to accept that we're finding our way through things and there are things that we're going to get right and things that we're going to get wrong but hopefully the end result of that is that we've made things even better for the people who come after us and they feel more supported and they're able to make more out of their lives and and who they are and what their natural talents and skills are so um, yeah as I was saying, it's kind of like accepting that there's an evolution for the generations that, you know, as saying culturally, socially, you know, we progress and learn things and try to get make ourselves better people by learning. And as I was saying, it's just about listening and realising as humans we make errors and being able to learn from mistakes as humans and just like progress on. I think that's where you kind of into that. Yeah, because, you know, we do, we we put so much pressure on ourselves, all of us do. Yeah. Because we live in a world where we're all trying to be more understanding and more aware. But none of us can possibly be already aware and understanding of things that we don't know. We all have to go through a learning process. And I think what's really my message to everybody at the moment is to just try and take any feeling of embarrassment out of your learning process because we all have to do it we all know what it is to feel embarrassed when you don't understand something or when you accidentally put your foot in it because you haven't realized that somebody has a certain way of being addressed or whatever it is like we we know that we know that you're gonna have to learn but let's like let's just be accepting for ourselves but also be accepting for others and take that embarrassment away from them and say listen like we get it. You may, you put yeah. your foot in your mouth, but we've explained it. And now you won't put your foot in your mouth next time because you just learn. And that's how we grow. So, yeah. And yeah, it's still, as you say, it's just about accepting that and being willing to not make the same mistake, try, try some, not say, not putting your foot in it uh, 
like several times again. And as long as you don't do that and just try to remember why you uh, did wrong before, then that's how you're able to progress. And that's the only thing they think can be made better. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I love, like, I hope that people look at me and they go, oh, yeah, clearly she's a girl that cares about people. Um, but I, I've made mistakes, right? I have a friend, okay? Um, now, when I first met this friend, when we were young, we were both girls. This friend has now, you know, gone through a process and has now changed their name and identifies as he, him. And I swear to God, there was an occasion not long ago where I was just off the cuff having a comment. And I was like, yeah, girl, because I'd known that person as a girl for many years. That wasn't, he knew I wasn't being offensive. He knew I wasn't being a, a, a horrible person to him because he just knew that I was like, you know, yeah. said it without thinking. And all he did was go, not a girl. And I was like, oh, sorry. Ooh, you know, you know why I did that? He's like, look at me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know you're, I can see you're a guy. Like, I know, like, I don't know why I said, but that's the thing. It's the context, yeah. isn't it? He um, knew I wasn't being offensive. Yeah, I wasn't trying to diminish his identity. I just simply had known him for many years before his transition. And the thing is, as I say, and it's about finding the empathy and, you know, being able to think like that as you, I think with like, as you were, talking with the TV show and really like stuff with in your life, learn about other people, learn about yourself. And as I say, and it's, it's about like a lot of, with, as I say, with that, you know, you was, yeah, were able to empathise and as I say, and if you make a mistake, it's about empathising with that person, as I say, like with that, that uh, accent, you know, like as you said, it's just something slipped out your mouth as just like a girl sometimes is by like, it's like a freeze, so you did not intend it, but then you kind of felt that. Oh my god, you know, I felt awful! Like yeah. it stabbed me through the heart that I'd done it, and that was the thing that my friend obviously saw. He was like, she wasn't even thinking when she said it. It was just words that came out. But you can see, he could see my pain. He could see I was absolutely distraught that I'd done that. Yeah, but I think that's kind of like an important point when you like as that kind of like reflects on, you know, with, with like, you know, very like systemic stuff that can be in a society like there's uh, as I say, like certain like racism, ableism, transphobia, uh, etc. You know, with that stuff, you know, it's important to actually, you know, feel that empathy, as I say, and that feel that bit of emotion just to say, oh, oh hold on, I mean, me there, and as I say, and not like trying to have it, fight it, ignore it. And, you know, as I say, saying, you know, thing, as we were saying earlier, things can get quite polarised and some people don't want to admit and take the take a mistake and actually listen and learn. As I say, not there's the intergenerationalism thing. And as I say, not talking about you, like different parts of your identity and you want to be able to do that through broadcasting. I can tell how you change trying to change the narrative as we as saying earlier. So at least you're able to notice that and have the empathy just to think about things differently, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, you know, all of us are a product product of, of our experience. Yeah. And there's no way 
that I'm going to know what it's like to be you. I've yeah. never lived your life. Even if we both have neurodivergencies, even if we're both, you know, from Great Britain, whatever, your combination of experiences are unique to you. Yeah. And my combination are unique to me because we're all this multifaceted thing. So we're going to make mistakes. We're going to say something and have our, at some point in our life, have our eyes opened by somebody else who saw that same event from the other side. And and the way that I like to describe it to people is, you know, we all saw the Oscars slap. I think everybody yeah. in the world saw Will Smith slap Chris Rock around the face at the Oscars. We all saw it on the same camera with the same video. We saw the same event, yeah. but everybody saw it differently. Yeah. Everybody had a different point of view about why that had happened, whether it should have happened, whether it could have been done differently. You know, who was to blame? Who was this? And that's my point to people. We can all see the same thing, but see it completely differently differently because of, of who we are, because of our combination of unique experiences. So that's all you have to understand when you're looking at any yeah. other person. It's just that you could both be looking at the same red gate, but one of you says it's red and one of you says it's blue. You're both right, probably. I think, like, you know, uh, if you like seeing, seeing something like the Oscar slap and something like that, you know, where the certain things that happen in the headlines are saying certain, oh, certain people behave as saying it's like a point of like ethics and morals of like how people see things differently right and wrong and it's about like as a saying you know you you try and you have conversations and you you listen I know you do and it's about you know being able to take upon whatever people have uh, said and you know like your group experiences and be able to work out what right from that and then I understand it can be quite difficult then if like so many people got so many hundreds or different ways of looking at one thing to know which which is the right way of looking for for thing or what is the right thing to uh, I guess it's that bit of like digging on that find that thing within yourself just to reflect on what's right and wrong. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah. you know, I I sometimes feel like I need to tell this to people as well, which is that for me, right and wrong, yeah. again, is a bit of a spectrum. Yeah. Because I, I, for a long point time in my life, was an unhealthy people pleaser. Now, I could have, and I did for a long time, saw that as doing right. I was doing right because I was making people happy. And that's great. That's noble. Yeah. That's wonderful. But was it right for me? Because what I was doing was expending all of my energy into doing things that other people wanted, to being what other people wanted, to living how other people wanted. And it completely sucked the soul out of me. So I think people have to have that balance, like you were yeah. saying. Uh, establish what is right and wrong for you. Yeah. Because an element of it, and, and I always considered it self-care, to be selfish. Yeah, That's how I'd kind of programmed myself or the, my experience had programmed me. So we have to remember, we have to take that away again a little bit and yeah. say... You know, self-care, yeah. looking after yourself, especially your neurodiversions, especially your, you know, physical health conditions, whatever, allows you to be the best version of yourself. Now, that is what's right for other people. Giving other people the best version of you, that's what's right for them. Not yeah. just doing everything that they want at the detriment of you. That's not right. Oh, yeah. And as you're saying stuff like with that, you know, like, you know, finding, being a people pleaser in your past, that's why you were starting to say that, can be quite a bit of, like, 
ADHD mask and all for autistic person. It can be that type of mask. And then, so I was just saying that, then with like trying to present the best version of yourself, then that does come with having the new divergent brain as we try to, as you say, there's so many different ways of looking at like certain things, looking at uh, like yeah. uh, how human behavior and how you think you're supposed to be. And then, you know, if you're trying to like kind of piece together like the most common ways to do behavior, that doesn't mean it's right. So as you're saying, it's like, even though if you've got, as I said, there's so many like hundred different versions and opinions that you can have on and think of, like the Oscar slap, as you're saying, but as you're saying that, like as you hint in the majority of them might not be the, the right one. And as you're saying that, it's not like a bone thing finding the best self for everyone, but it's like trying to be the best you for yourself, you know, what you know, what, what works for you and who you exactly. are. Exactly. And accepting that your best yeah. and perfection are not the same thing. Yeah. But perfection doesn't exist. Like I just want to throw that yeah. word away. It actually yeah. doesn't exist because what it what is perfect, you know, to me, I just yeah. find that that really challenging. Yeah. Um but yeah, being the best version of yourself, which, you know, if your best version of yourself means, listen, I know that every day at three o'clock, I need to go and have a nap for an hour. Otherwise, I'm going to be really cranky in the evening. Well, then that's just you assessing what your needs are in order to be the yeah. best version of yourself. Why shouldn't you? If you need a nap at three in the afternoon, then have the nap if you can. Yeah, I was just saying <laughs> it. Yeah, it's about trying to like, learn like, what, like, kind of negatives perspective and stuff like that and you know like trying to find the biggest of like making them to win self-care it's I guess you know as you're saying that with the like you know you only got diagnosed recently with ADHD and I can tell that you probably still like find finding yourself on a learning curve of how to do what's best for yourself and how to make sure you 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 are making sure you take taking care of what's the best you for you yeah yeah I'm definitely still still learning that um throwing in um doing a tv show around the time of your diagnosis I don't recommend to anybody because it you know for like a lot of people will know if you do something like that that's so intense you know and you've got any kind of neurodivergency there's a massive sort of um recharging time that's needed afterwards and I would say that that my recharging time kind of happened after the filming and then it happened again after the show actually aired. So it really took up a lot of last year for me. So I kind yeah. of gave myself the goal of going, OK, New Year is when I'm going to get my head screwed back on and we're going to try and get back into, you know, finding my new routine and yeah. establishing those coping mechanisms. Yeah, because I guess the challenge is when you were doing this, so it's like completing this so and doing like all the different tasks and whatever comes to that. And then they learn about your ADHD and that side of yourself. And I guess people like getting a diagnosis then, even though it's something that you've known for years and you like had the idea of knowing yourself as having ADHD, but getting that diagnosis and starting to learn a lot more about it, I guess then it can be quite intense and a lot to do with, but as you said, I think, like meeting somebody like Kelly Given and stuff like that. I think having like person probably with ADHD also on this or with yourself, probably like 
of not relationship being met, probably to help yourself in that way. A hundred percent. And and I always say to people, peer support is one of the best tools that you can have in your toolkit. And whether that is just simply going and following an ADHD or a sensory, you know, yeah. page on Instagram, or whether that is, you know, really getting active in like a support group, whether it's a yeah. WhatsApp group or something like that. Um, anything like that that helps you to self-manage is so important. Even if it just comes down to little things like something's happened and you think, God, I bet that only happens to me and you beat yourself up. Ask on the group and then you get 10 other people pop up. Oh, no, that happens to me all the time. It's so reassuring. It helps with the burnout. So that would be my one piece of advice to anybody. If you're not doing it, reach out and get involved in some community groups online. Yeah, that's right. Like that's with online and those type of groups, like or from like the stuff you see like on social media, whether it's Twitter and TikTok, just help yourself. Like learned a lot more about myself from that and how much my autism affects myself because I I think before I got diagnosed, or well before I was in school anyway when I was diagnosed and in sixth form, I didn't know much about a and my autism affects myself and I wouldn't be that open and all honest talking about it to other people. But when I found like other people talking about it online and like sharing their own experiences, I learned how much more it affects myself and how how much it does affect me and how, how I can talk about these things and be a bit more open and honest about it. And you know, you do feel less lonely if you like you as you're saying, if you like see a mess message and message somebody in like a Renault's chat group but also if you're like scrolling through like social media like TikTok to see like somebody make a video on something about how they uh, autism ADHD dysbox or whatever affects them then you know it just helps just to see something like that and that really does help yeah and that's the beautiful thing about the internet, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. we, we're not grouped together geographically. It's not like everybody with ADHD or lives in the same village, you yeah. know, so you can talk to each other. And that's the beautiful thing about about finding these communities online is that yeah. you can just, you know, you can search based on your need and you can meet people that understand what you're going through. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. And I think now we'll get into wrap up points because we had an excellent conversation and really been enjoying this interview so Brilliant. and then normally ask I think the question that one of the questions normally ask at the end like how how would would we make the uh, like the world a better place for people who like who are new with autism and I think some of that's been quite covered in the interview anyway but do you have any other points that you would add on to that? Um, I think for me it's it's definitely down to this sort of language and this normalization. And I want to reach a point where, you know, you mentioned it and I don't think I've mentioned it, but I absolutely had, did have those same feelings as you as I don't know whether I should talk about this. Do you know? And that's like, that can be in a one-to-one conversation or especially like I would find maybe in a job interview, you'd be like, am I going to do myself a disservice if I mention this? Yeah. You know, and and I think what we need to get to is we need to get to a point um, where everybody is able to talk about it and talk about it for what it is and not put that sort of negative tone on it. Like it's and, and I guess the best way I can describe what I'm trying to say is 
I've met people before who have had a disability in whatever way, and in a yeah. hidden illness, whatever they, you know, legally their condition classifies as a disability. And those people get very, I'm not disabled. I'm da 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 da. That you and I'm going well. By the letter of the law, technically, you yeah. classify as disabled. The only reason that you don't like that is because in your mind, disabled is a dirty word. In your mind, disabled means something bad. And that's why you don't want to be associated with it. Well, that's what I want to change because disabled to me doesn't mean something bad. It doesn't make me less. It makes me a person who is achieving everything that able people are achieving, but I'm doing it with an added challenge. So actually that makes me more. And that's what I want to change. I want to change this, these negative connotations that come along with some of these words like disabled, like neurodivergence like ADHD because actually they are skills you you just haven't looked at it in the right way yeah it's and thank, thanks for saying that I hundred agree with percent of that you know so uh is there any like final things that you haven't got to say in this interview that you went to say I just want to say keep in touch I've really enjoyed this conversation yeah, course, I've had so with you it's been so touch. lovely thank you for inviting me on the show yeah. and um you know if you ever want me to come back and talk to you again, I'd be more than happy to. And I'm looking forward to hearing all the other amazing people that you're talking to. Oh, so thanks thank very much. Do you have any way people can follow you or anything you yes, want to promote? Yes, ab- absolutely, yes. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am Real Miss Balmain for however long Twitter lasts for, we don't know. Um, on Instagram, I'm just Miss Balmain. And um, on TikTok, I'm Real Miss Balmain. So either Real Miss Balmain or Miss Balmain, you will find me. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for doing this. It's an amazing interviewer. I really enjoyed this one. Thanks very Bless much. You. Thank you so much for having me and have a wonderful rest of your day. I will do. Thank you. So I want to thank Natalie again for coming on the podcast. She was a pleasure to have on the podcast and to record with her and to become acquainted with her after tweet- uh, connecting with her on full Twitter about the show Make Me a Prime Minister and interacting about as a viewer and she shows what she, a great politician she would be and what the importance is of having different people from different backgrounds in politics is. She knew how to empathise, listen and communicate well with myself and she was a pleasure again to say to have on and if you want to watch haven't watched the series but after this interview you want to watch the series make me a prime minister if you're in the UK you can catch up on all four and I say thanks you for listening and thanks again for Natalie t- to come on the po- for coming on the podcast Next week on the podcast, we have a hilarious uh, interview with the very funny uh, Harriet Kemsley. Harriet is a great comedian who's been on shows like 8 Out of 10 Cats, Does Countdown, Live at Apollo and Stand Up Sketch, as well as doing bits on video and podcasts. You'll be able to hear that chat at the time of of 8am next Thursday and if you listen to this episode and like to watch you please rate, subscribe, share and give a positive review where you listen to it and make sure people know where, where to find this podcast 
Thanks again for listening. This has been an Avril Audio production for the New Rainbow Project and hosted by me, Autistically Aaron. Until next time, have a good one.